welcome to Sundays at Grace, the podcast ministry of Robinson Grace Church in Grand Haven, Michigan. Merry Christmas to you and yours. I'm Pastor Bill. So glad you've joined us yet again for this edition of the podcast, the Christmas edition. We're celebrating Christmas at Robinson Grace. And in this sermon series, Waiting on Christmas, we're looking at this idea that while we as a society are always waiting on Christmas, it's like the best time of the year. The world actually, since Adam and Eve, waited 4,000 years for the birth of Christ, the birth of the Messiah, and it was well worth the wait. Hey, if you go to our website, myrdc.com, you can download handout notes to go with this message, and you can donate to the ministry of Robinson Grace Church. There's a link to do that as well. Hey, in this message entitled The Other Side of Hope, we're going to look at yet another baby in the Bible that parallels the life of Jesus, another type of Christ. And uh, we're going to look at this idea that Christmas is a season of hope. The, the great song, O Holy Night, says the thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. And that is so true. And we'll look at it in this message, this idea of how hope is wrapped up in Christmas. So thanks again for joining us. Have a great Christmas season. And I hope this message blesses you, the other side of hope. show you a series of pictures and you can see this on your handout what pictures are coming but I want you to choose of all these photos which one which photo do you think best resembles hopefulness to you that sense of hopefulness there is not a right or wrong answer to this there's no right or wrong picture but we'll start here and then we'll circle back around at the end of the message and touch on this. So which photo here best represents hopefulness to you? We have first balloon soaring through the sky, hot air balloon. Then we have, of course, a beautiful sunrise over the clouds somewhere. What a glorious sunrise that is. Then you have a calendar. You pick the month. There's the big day. Um, how about this? There's a candle just consuming the darkness around it. And then there is this last one. There is a boat out at sea and uh, there is an anchor. Uh, and there's kind of the anchor that would hold the boat in the storm out at sea. Here they are again. I'll give you one more time to look through them. You choose the one that you think best speaks or communicates hopefulness to you. Second thing I want to do is I want you to kind of picture, if you can, you got a post-it note in your hands, a post-it note in your fingers. And on one side of that post-it note, we have hope written. And I want to talk about the other side of that post-it note. What's the other side of hope? Because for us as believers who know Christ, if we're in Christ, we have a second side to hope. We really do. There is a second side to hope. We have really a different, different definition of hope. If the, if the world were to, to, to define hope, they would define it differently than we do. Okay, last night I was watching the Ohio State Buckeyes and at halftime, I wasn't very hopeful. I was like, ah, come on, get your act together here. By the end of the game, I had a lot of hope. And so people buy, they buy lottery tickets and they hope they're going to win the lottery. And the world has a definition of hope. We have an entirely different definition. There is a second side to hope. Uh, let me start with this passage here in Hebrews chapter 6 and read through this and we'll see the second side of hope here. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. 
For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this hope uh, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Mel. So there we have the second side of hope. And the illustration of Abraham shows us the second side of hope, which is nothing, none other than promise. The second side of hope is promise. And that's what Abraham's life illustrates for us. He had hope, but he had hope that was guaranteed by a promise. In fact, the text says there's two unchangeable things. God cannot lie, and there's two unchangeable things. And what God did, literally, was he gave Abraham a promise, made a covenant with him, and then he backed it up with an oath. And I can't go into what the oath, really the ceremony of the oath was, but there was a ceremony kind of they went through. And so God gave Abraham a promise, a covenant, and then backed it up with, a, with an oath. And it's impossible for God to lie. Here's today's big idea. It's real simple. Our hope in Christ is equivalent to the promise of Christ. Your hope and my hope today in Christ is equivalent to the promise that we have in Christ. Now we're in this series, Waiting on Christmas, week two of the series, Waiting on Christmas. Last week we talked about Jesus as a deliverer. We looked at the baby Moses as he parallels the life of Jesus. And today we're going to look at a different baby. But the premise behind this series is that as a society we're always waiting for Christmas, aren't we? We cannot wait for Christmas to come. As I said last week, you'll see this within days of Christmas being over. There's the memes on Facebook, 358 days till Christmas. Or, or my next door neighbor already put up his Christmas decorations. You know, they're jokes. They're jokes, but they speak to this reality that we can't, we, we love Christmas. We can't wait for Christmas. We have Christmas in July because you can't go an entire year without waiting for Christmas. Now, the irony, I said, is I mentioned those four idols last week. Remember the four idols of materialism and hedonism and humanism and atheism. And I said, it's really ironic that Christmas kind of starts with, with that idol of what? Materialism or consumerism on Black Friday. And it kind of ends for the world, uh, really on, on New Year's Eve, with hedonism. And just, you know, let's just, let's just drink ourselves out of our mind and, and party ourselves into, you know, to the new year into a world of emptiness. What's really ironic is that what we all want is Christmas, the hope and the joy and the peace and the faith. The engine that drives Christmas is what? It's the peace on earth and the goodwill toward men. The peace on earth and goodwill towards men. That's, what, that's the engine that drives Christmas. Now here's the reality. We talk about waiting for Christmas. The reality is... For 4,000 years, the world waited for Christmas. They couldn't wait for Christmas. They longed for Christmas. They maybe didn't know what they were longing for, but they longed for Christmas. And when Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden committed that first sin and plunged the entire world into darkness and into despair, God came immediately along and said, hey, I've got a promise for you. I'm going to send you a redeemer, a rescuer, a messiah, a deliverer. I'm going to send you a savior. And for 4,000 years, the world waited for that 
Messiah and that Savior and that Deliverer to come. For 4,000 years, they were waiting. What we're going to see today, we want to see a second baby. We mentioned the baby Moses last week as the Deliverer. What we want to see today, and, and just understand that, <clears throat> that while people longed for this, for this Messiah to come, and even in Jesus' day, some of them understood that a Messiah was coming. They didn't quite fully comprehend what that Messiah was. They didn't really understand. But here's the reality. Today, we're going to see Jesus in, 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 in uh, parallel to another baby in the Old Testament, the baby Isaac. And Isaac is the baby of promise, and so is Jesus the baby of promise. So we're going to see this morning Jesus as the promised child. There's, there, there's just a fascinating parallel between the life of Isaac and the life of Jesus. Now, I can't go into great detail into all these parallels this morning. We're going to hit five or six of maybe the most uh, central parallels in their life. But, but watch this with me, okay? Travel back 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. It's actually 2,000 years after Adam and Eve, right in the middle there. God comes down to a man named Abraham and his wife Sarah, and he reconfirms this promise that he's going to send a Messiah into the world, and he actually reconfirms it to and through Abraham. He says, Abraham, you're going to be the one. You're going to start a, a great family, a great nation on the earth, and I'm going to send that Messiah, that deliverer I promised. I'm going to send him through you. And so we kind of pick up the story here in, now, now realize in Genesis chapter 12, God came to, Mo, or came to Abraham already. Abraham's already left and he's already in the, the land of promise. And we come to Genesis here, uh, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to start to pick up the story of Isaac. Abraham and Isaac and this whole comparison, this parallel between the two of them, how Isaac is the promised child, a type of Christ. Genesis 15, 1, after these things, the word, of the, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to this man, word came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and, it, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God comes down and gives us incredible promise. Now don't miss the parallel. The parallel here is that just as God promised a son to Isaac, he parallels the fact that God promised to send his own son to this world to be the rescue and the redeemer and the deliverer. Now, so that would be the, the first parallel. I'm going to show you five or six of them here real quickly. But they were both promised. Both Isaac and Jesus are the promised children. That's the first parallel that we can see. Um, now, just to stop here for a minute, because I, I can just kind of picture this in my mind. Can you imagine what this promise did for Abraham and Sarah? Can you imagine what this did for their, you know, maybe their love life? It's like, can you imagine Abraham going into Sarah saying, Sarah, you know, I know you don't have any kids. You've been barren forever. Guess what God just told me? You're having a baby. By the way, what are you doing right now? You just imagine that? And so, you know, and so, yeah, we're going to have a baby. And so I can just imagine every week Abraham comes into Sarah and says, so, hey, you think you're pregnant this week? Kill anything kicking in there? 
And then after a while, it becomes every month, he comes to Sarah. Hey, Sarah, you think, you think maybe this is the month? Is it going to be a December baby? What do you think? And after a while, it's every six months. And then after a while, it's every year he's going in. And you think it's this year? And finally, after a dozen years, and by now, Sarah's 87 years old. Sarah says, Abraham, you don't get it. I'm 87 years old. It ain't happening. Stop asking me. It ain't happening. Maybe you need to, you know, Hagar. Maybe, you know, maybe you can have a baby with Hagar. Maybe we need to do that. Maybe we need to help God out with the promise a little bit here. And if you know the story, that's what happens next in the story. And Ishmael is born. And Ishmael, boy, that creates all kinds of problems because they couldn't wait on God's timing. And we're still dealing with the problem of Ishmael in the world today because of all Ishmael's descendants think they get what is promised to Isaac. They think the promised land is theirs. There's been this battle between Ishmael and Isaac, really, in those nations forever. For thousands and thousands and thousands of years. What we see here is that both of these children were the babies that were waited on. We waited on Jesus for 4,000 years. They waited on Isaac for 25 years. I mean, they both were well overdue. I mean, let's be honest. Sarah was well overdue. Well past her due date in Abraham's eyes. Yeah. Now here's the thing. 25 years later, Isaac will be born. And God comes back to Abraham and clears up any confusion about the promised child. So let's read a little more of the story here in Genesis 17. And God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become uh, she shall become nations, kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Hmm. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Over in chapter 18, did a little more of the, the context from Sarah's side of the story. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Now, uh, just, just understand something here. Here's, here's the question. How many know the answer to this question? Why did God wait 25 years for Sarah to, to get pregnant and give birth? Anybody know why he waited 25 years? It's real simple. Because see, when she was 65 years old, she was old, but eh, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Okay, maybe she could have a baby. She's 65. But when she's 90 years old and it can't happen for her anymore, that's when God says, yeah. And I'm going to show up at the appointed time. It's almost like, if you read that, it's almost like God's saying, I'm going to come back at the appointed time. And when I come back, you'll, you'll get pregnant. And then nine months later, a year from now, you're going to give birth. 
You see, this is so much like Christ because you see both Jesus and both Isaac were born at just the right time. He said at the appointed time, it reminds me of what Galatians says, but when the, time, when the right time came, God sent his son born of a woman at just the right time. And we might have thought, God, you are 4,000 years late. I'm sure that Abraham and Sarah thought, God, you're 25 years late. What do you, but at just the right time. And the reason that God waits, here's the reason that God waits. It's simply put, therefore, Hebrews 11, 12. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven and as many as the immeasurable grains of the sand by the seashore. Here's the reality. They were both miracle babies born with God's intervention. God gave birth to Isaac in such a way that no one could look at it and think they had done this. What did they do? They did Ishmael. Yeah, they, they created Ishmael. They did not create Isaac. Just like Mary was the virgin. And Isaac was a miracle baby born of God's intervention. And that speaks to another, really another parallel within the context of the story here that we may not miss. And I can't really go into great detail on this, but I will tell you this, that basically both babies were point, both, both babies pointed to the new covenant of grace. They both did. It's kind of fascinating because even before God brought the law and introduced really the old covenant, there was this general covenant he had with Abraham and, and, and Isaac actually is the covenant of grace. You can read that in Galatians 4. Ishmael was the covenant of law. Ishmael was the covenant of the Old, the old Testament covenant of man's works. Ishmael was what man did. Isaac, the covenant of grace, is the unmerited grace and mercy and favor of God. It is what God did. It is the work of God. And what did Jesus come to do but to establish, to end the covenant of law and bring in a new covenant of grace based totally on the favor and the unmerited mercy and grace of God. Let me give you just a couple more parallels here. A couple more parallels. If we go to Hebrews 11, this takes us to the New Testament, a little New Testament insight here. And what we'll see here is, we'll see the next major uh, part of the story of Abraham and Isaac. And this is when God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son. He's about 15, 16, 17, 18. I want you to take him up the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Put him on an altar and I want you to kill him and sacrifice him for me. Wow, how do you think Abraham would respond to that. Hebrews eleven seventeen. by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. He was actively ready to take his son's life. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So this is the promise. This is God's promise to him. And he's like ready to take the life of God's promise to him. Talk about faith. 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Notice that phrase there, he did figuratively receive him back, figuratively speaking. That speaks to this idea that that Isaac's a parallel. Isaac didn't really die, but figuratively he did die because he parallels Christ. So here's the reality. Here's what you see, because I want you to think about something. So, how old is Abraham? How old's Abraham? He's, he's 117 now, probably. 
115. Isaac is 15, 16, 17. We don't have an exact date, but if, if you do a little research and a little crunching, number crunching, you can probably guess he's about in his late latter teens. You don't think Isaac could stand up to his dad and say, sorry, dad, you ain't sacrificing me. And so both of these babies were willing to lay down their lives for their father. How amazing is that? Jesus willingly came to lay down his life for the father and for the sins of the world. And Isaac's like, well, God, well, dad, if this is what God wants, and if this is what you want. And Isaac had to climb up, I believe, had to climb up on that altar and say, have at it, dad. Have at it. And it's really interesting here, and there's just an interesting side note in the story here. How many know, how many know when, when he's taking Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him, how many know what, what um, Sarah said? You know what the Bible says Sarah said? The Bible never tells us. Interesting the conversations and the information that the Bible sometimes leaves out of the story. We have no idea what that was like. How Sarah, how mom responded to the fact that Abraham was taking her only son up the mountain to sacrifice him, we do not know. But we do know this, that basically he considered that God, Abraham, and probably Isaac, was able to even raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So both of them approached death with the hope of resurrection. So we see here, we see these two babies, and we see how they so much parallel one another. Pretty fascinating. So here's what I want to do next. So we've, we've looked at these parallels. Now let's, let me give you real briefly here, three threats to our hope. So we have hope, right? We have hope rooted in a promise. Our hope is guaranteed by a promise. So here's three common threats to our hope today because we want to have hope in this world that sometimes it's threatened. Number one is when we are not on God's calendar. And this is Abraham and uh, Sarah's story, right? That's why they gave uh, birth to Ishmael because they just weren't on God's calendar. And after 12 years, it's like, hey, we're waiting too long. Maybe we got to help God out here. And so they step in and they are not on God's calendar, not on God's, uh, God's uh, timeline. Just remember that both Isaac and Jesus were born at the appointed time. Jesus has an appointed time on his calendar for the things he is working out in your life. Don't miss that. Don't lose hope and create a mess. And if Abraham was teaching this message this morning, he would say this to you. Hey, just don't get ahead of God because you'll be really sorry if you get ahead of God. That's our first threat. The second threat to our hope is this. It's when we don't understand God's purpose. When we don't understand what God's doing in our life. You know, when Jesus began his public ministry, there were those that were act actively looking for the Messiah. Uh, Philip and Andrew and Peter, they were looking for the Messiah to come. They really were. They just didn't quite understand what his coming meant. Because when he went to the cross, when he came to the point of death in his ministry, what did they all do? But they all like, uh, well, they all kind of lost hope. <laughs> they lost all their hope because they didn't understand God's purpose and God's plan. We always need to ask this question, how does God's promise to me interact with God's purpose for me? The Bible's filled with God's promises, but how do his promises to me interact with his purpose for me? What's he doing in my life and how do those promises that he has fit in? And then thirdly, the third threat to our hope is when we, are, when we fail to walk in faith. 
when we fail to walk in faith, we have to walk in faith. Like Abraham, we have to have faith in the promises of God. We have to believe that what God says is, even when it is not yet. We have to believe that what God says both is and will be. We often talk about the second coming, right? The second coming is our blessed hope. It is a hope because it is a guaranteed promise. That's why it is a hope. Ask yourself, how did Abraham walk up that mountain ready to sacrifice his only son, the promise? How did he do that? Because he walked in faith. And he walked up that mountain ready to sacrifice his son, believing that God could resurrect him from the dead. He had hope. He went up that mountain to sacrifice his son with hope because he walked up that mountain in faith. We have to walk by faith to walk in the promises of God and to be a people of hope. So remember today our big idea. Our hope in Christ is equivalent to the promise of God. Christ. So here, let's apply this all this morning now. Let me give you five, real briefly, five quick promises from Scripture. We're going to kind of pull these out of the Christmas narrative. We're going to find the hope and the promise, and we're going to wrap this all together, everything we've looked at so far. Just understand one thing about the promises of God. The Bible is full of the promises of God. You have to remember that while all the Bible is written to or for us, it's not all written to us. And so like, for, for instance, God gave this promise, this covenant to Abraham that one day he'd be a great nation and there would be a great kingdom here on the earth. And uh, yeah, we're not, that's not a promise for us. We're not looking for God to come establish some great kingdom that we'll be a part of. The reality is we have a heavenly hope and we're going to be raptured off the face of the earth before God, Jesus comes back and establishes that kingdom and rules from Jerusalem over the world. We're not even going to be here at that time. So understand the Bible, there are promises. Sometimes we have to say, is that promise for me or is that promise not for me? We talked about that two weeks ago in tithing. There's a promise to the Israelites, if they gave their 10%, they could expect certain things. Yeah, that's not for us today. We give by grace and we explained that a couple weeks back. So let's look at these promises though. Here's five promises we can claim and we can find them all in the Christmas narrative. And as I go through them, if one or two of them jump out at you, just circle it. Say, boy, that really speaks to me today. The first promise is this, is that we can trust God. So just know today, the Bible says, there's a promise from God, you can trust me regardless of whatever is going on in your life. Even if you don't understand God's purpose or God's calendar, you can trust him. Here's the Proverbs, uh, I must have missed it, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Here's what it says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. And when I think about this ability to trust God when we don't understand everything, I think about the wise men traveling all the way from, as we said last week, they're most likely priestly sages traveling from Arabia. Pretty fascinating. Oh, there it is. I just put the wrong uh, scripture on the top of it there. But here's the reality. I think of these wise men traveling all this way. Now, Google puts the trip at about 1,000 miles. And so here's the reality. They've got a star in the sky, and you might think, well, how much trust did that take? There was a star, and it pointed them there. But the reality is they believed in the star. They believed in the promise that God gave about a star. They trusted that that star was real. And then they get to Jerusalem, and what happens After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, 
Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They go to the most logical place to find out where this baby is. And they know nothing. They know not, in fact, there's this kind of, they might have got this vibe, I don't know, but they might have got the vibe that, hey, the people and the king aren't very happy about this news. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Can you just imagine if you were the wise men, would you get discouraged? Would you at this point like think, why, we traveled all this way and they don't even know anything and they should know, they should know all the details. Would you get discouraged? Would you lose hope? Would you give up? Would you think about going back home? Well, no, because they had faith they, were, they had walked that walk by faith. And when we walk in faith, we can claim the promises of God and we can have hope. So they didn't get discouraged. They didn't lose hope. The indifference of the people didn't impact them. It, it says in verse 9, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And so God intervenes yet again. The star reappears. They're all thrilled and they're all happy. And the message today from the wise men would be very simple. Don't lose hope. Keep looking up. Even if you don't understand God's purpose or God's calendar, don't lose hope. Keep looking up. There's a, there's a promise. It's a guarantee. Second promise, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. The Bible says you do not need to fear. You do not need to be afraid. And if you read through the Christmas narrative, you'll find at least four people in the Christmas narrative that are told not to fear. Zachariah is told not to fear. Mary is told not to fear. The shepherds are told not to fear. And Joseph is told not to fear. Now Joseph, his fear was a little different than the other three because Joseph, well, here's what it says about Joseph. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph's fear was he wanted to do the right thing by God and by Mary, and he wanted to do the righteous thing in this. And yet the lesson is real simple that you don't, you know, you, you can trust God. Whatever God asks you to do, you can do it. If you know God has asked you to do something, step out in faith and do it. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be scared you can have peace and you can have fear. In fact, it's great. Listen to this verse here. This is even greater. Here's what Paul said to Timothy. Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands for God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. See, it's even better than the fact that you don't have to be afraid. It's that God has made you not afraid. That God gave you a spirit, that's a small s, that's your spirit that he quickened and made alive when you came to Christ. And the spirit within you is not a spirit of fear. It's like the last series on our heart. We have hearts that are not consumed with fear. We have hearts that want to step out and trust God and do whatever God wants us to do in faith. That's what we want to do. Sometimes our feelings are fearful. But we don't have to be afraid. And the lesson from Joseph is real simple. If you fear God, you have nothing to fear. If you fear God, you have absolutely nothing to fear. Third promise is real simple here again. Nothing is impossible for God. 
Absolutely nothing is impossible for God. And there's an interesting, fascinating part of the Christmas narrative I was kind of drawn to this year and uh, listening to someone else speak and kind of drawn into this, pretty fascinating. Both Mary and Joseph share something in common. Both Mary and Joseph communicate that they knew they were pure and they knew they were righteous and Mary was having a baby and yet Mary didn't do anything and Joseph knew he hadn't done anything and they both act like, well, how can that happen? Because I know I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pure, I'm righteous, and Mary's the same way. There's this theological debate today that's kind of like, is the virgin birth important? And you can, you can find studies on this, and, and some people go and they say, well, the word for virgin in the Bible is this and that and this and that. It doesn't really mean a virgin, it means something else. And so it, it's really, maybe, maybe Mary really wasn't a virgin. I'll just tell you this, Mary thought she was a virgin, <laughs> Mary's like, hey, you know what? If I'm having a baby, I don't know how that's happening. I just don't know how that's happening. And the reality is, the lesson is real simple. Nothing is impossible for God, for nothing will be impossible with God. That's what the angel said to Mary. And Mary's like, yeah. And when the deck seems stacked against us, when we don't understand God's purpose or timing, we need to understand what both Mary and what Abraham knew. Here's Abraham. Romans 4, another Bible, uh, another book of the Bible speaking about Abraham's story. In hope, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Basically, when he shouldn't have had hope, he had hope. He had all the hope in the world. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And the lesson today from Mary and from Abraham is simple. God can work miracles in any situation. He worked miracles for us and maybe maybe you're not looking for a bigger family, whatever you're looking for. God can work miracles in any situation, even when you don't understand his timetable and his purpose. Here's a fourth promise. God will meet our every need. And and I look at this here, and I just think about, did I put the verse here? Yeah, Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And right here I see a Mary and Joseph. I see them tired. I see them, they've traveled for how many miles now to get from home to get to Bethlehem to get to this census. And they arrive there. And, and here's the reality. So I'll give you a little more, a little more information on how this, this works. They arrive at the inn, right? And there's no room at the inn. Well, generally what I, have, what I have heard from many sources is that back in that day, the inn would have been the home of a distant relative. So this is some distant relative in their family. Somehow they're related. And that's the, the home they knock on and say, hey, you know, we need a bed tonight. And she's about ready to give birth. And so the people that turn her away are... you know, at best, they're they're pretty pretty distant, maybe distant family in some way. Now, I don't know, and and maybe maybe they were the ones who pointed her down to where she gave birth, and we've talked about this the last few years, that she gave birth most likely just outside of Bethlehem in that shepherd's tower where the priests sacrificed the lambs for the, for the, uh, uh, for the uh, for the sacrifice for the Jewish sacrifices, but here's the reality: family or not, it was God who was providing the bed and breakfast. It was God who made the reservations and readied the manger. 
And the promise can be hard for us sometimes to claim, right? Because sometimes God takes his time or we fail to understand his purpose. We are waiting and thinking, you promised to meet my need. It's at this point we need to reassess the entire promise here. What does the promise say again? And my God will supply every need. Can I just contend to you this morning that sometimes God's meeting needs in our life we don't even know exist. I think this is my need and God's like, that's not your need. You know what you really need? You need a little more faith. You need to learn how to pray. You need to learn how to struggle. You need to grow that faith muscle. You need to learn to trust me a little more. That's what you need. And sometimes we're looking at A or B. This is my need. And God's like, no, your need is X, Y, or Z. Your need's over here. And I will meet every need. And then the lesson today is real, real simple. I I can just hear Mary as she heads towards the the shepherd's tower, tired and feeling the birth pangs. and, and, And Joseph, doesn't God know? Doesn't God know the baby is coming? Doesn't he know we need a place to... to give birth? We need that bed. The lesson from Joseph and Mary is simple. God knows our needs and how to meet them better than we do. That's a promise. God knows whatever need is in your life right now and he he knows how to meet that need better than he knows knows the most important need and how to meet that need. And then finally, give you one last promise this morning. Simply this, Christ is our life. Christ is our life. The simple fact is Christmas, as we said last week, it is about Jesus becoming God in the flesh. It's about Jesus revealing God to us. And here's what it says, Matthew 1, 23. We started here this morning. Wade read this. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The thing is, Jesus died, and he grew up. Or he grew up, and he died. And he resurrected, and he ascended, and he went to heaven. And you could look at that and say, well, he's no longer with us. He was with us, but he's not with us anymore. But that's so untrue, right? Because God's not just with us today. God is actually in us. For you have died, Colossians 3, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And the reality is at this very moment, if you know Christ as your Savior, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And yes, Christmas is when Jesus came to be with us, but even more so than that today, he is actually living in us. I love this verse, Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We love the last part of that verse, right? God, what a great promise. God will never leave us or forsake us. Why is the first part of that verse there? It's because, hey, if you have Christ, you have everything you need. He's your life. Don't worry about money. Be content with wherever you're at in life because you know what? If you got Christ, you got everything. I will never leave you nor forsake you. For those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, you are eternally secure in him. That's another promise. And you can bank on that promise. So what did we learn today? Well, here's the lesson from Jesus. I am not only with you, I am in you. I came to be your life, I am your life. That is a promise. And we talk about that all the time here. Here's what we learned today. Our hope in Christ is equivalent to the promise of Christ. I have a hope in Christ that's equivalent to the guaranteed promise that I have in Christ. We learned that Jesus in the Old Testament, uh, that Isaac, the promised child, is a type of Christ. They are similar. We looked at some of those similarities of how they are so similar. 
and the three common threats to our hope, right? We're not on God's calendar. We don't understand God's purpose. We're not walking in faith. And then we learn these lessons. Don't lose hope, but keep looking up. And if you fear God, you have nothing to fear. And God can work miracles in any situation. And God knows our needs and how to meet them better than we do. And I am not only with you, I am in you. I want to leave here this morning. There's a couple of questions, and you can take these home today and kind of unpack them. But ask yourself, is, is there any lessons you've learned this morning that you would find helpful? Is there a promise this morning you need to recognize in your life that will give you hope? Realize that if you want hope, go back to the promises. Because the other side of hope is a promise, is a guarantee from God. Is there anything that is presently threatening your hope? And maybe you need to unpack that this morning with God. Is there anything in my life that's, that's attacking my hope right now? And then finally, I would ask you this. Do you know Christ personally? Have you put your faith and trust in Him? Do you, have you believed and received? Believe that He is the Messiah? Believe that you are a sinner, that He came to pay the price for your sins? Have you received Him? He is the ultimate promise and hope. And I would ask this morning, is He yours? If not, will you settle that in your heart today? Just receive him as your savior. I want to end with this balloon illustration. So let's, let's, un, let's just try to apply this for just a brief minute. We have this, uh, this idea of hope here. And so let's say that there's Mary, and Mary, she's uh, working at this job, been there for a number of years, and Mary wants to move up. <clears throat> she wants to move up at work. And so she goes to one of the higher-ups, and the management says, yeah, you know what? I think there's a position that's going to open for you and you can move up. You can advance. And so Mary's pretty excited. Well, three months go by and nothing happens and six months go, goes by and nothing happens and she says something again to one of the management higher-ups and they're like, yeah, I think there's something that's going to open up. And, and, and Mary feels like God's telling her to just be patient and wait, but she's just getting so frustrated. And after a year, Mary loses all hope. She lost all her hope. She just couldn't wait on God's, on God's time. And she left and she went and took a new job. And three months later, they opened a brand new building, a brand new center at her company. And she knows exactly where she would have been if she had just waited. Then there's Bob. Bob was asked to come and leave, really, the secular industry and go work for a church. And he was into audiovisual stuff, really talented, loved the Lord. What a great opportunity. It was going to pay great. It was going to be a, a great opportunity. He was so excited, felt like God was leading him there. But there was one guy that just, Bob just couldn't get along with this guy. He just gritted on Bob's nerves. And uh, the guy knew a lot. And the guy was teaching Bob things. I mean, he kind of had met with him and he taught him some things, but he just couldn't stand this guy. And uh, eventually... Bob, because, just because of this guy, he lost all hope and uh, turned the job down. Three months later, the guy retired. Just because he didn't understand that God was using this guy just to maybe teach him a few things and further him along, and what a great opportunity. And then there's Jenny, and Jenny, okay, now Jenny, she faced her issues. She walked by faith, and Jenny had gone through a lot of difficulties, a really difficult marriage that, that fell apart. It was really tough, and then she had a job for 20 years, and she lost it, and uh, you know, yeah, she had a fire in her home. She had all this bad stuff really happened to her and she's hanging on and she's walking by faith and then one day the phone rings and one day all of a sudden the doctor says, yes, it's cancer. 
and she lost her hope. And what hope do we have? I mean, really, uh, thanks for coming today. I mean, if you walk by faith and you lose your hope, what's the answer? Here's the answer. This is not our hope. This is our hope. This, this, maybe sometimes the feeling of hopefulness comes, but this is our hope. And our hopes can be popped and we can think we don't have any hope, and no, we have hope. Because hope is a promise. Hope is a guarantee. Hope is that God can do impossible things. Hope is that you don't have to be afraid. Hope is that you can trust God no matter what's going on in your life. Hope is that I will send a Messiah into the world and it might take 4,000 years, but I'll send him. And he'll come and he'll fill your heart with such joy and peace and happiness. Well, what you can't visually capture on the podcast is that closing illustration. And what it is, is I had four balloons set up across the stage and they were all anchored down. These helium balloons were floating. And as I approached each balloon and as I told each story, I illustrated the person who didn't understand God's calendar and the person who didn't understand God's purpose. And even that third person who actually was walking in faith and facing their circumstances in faith. And I popped each balloon as if to signify they had lost their hope but then with the fourth balloon I held it up and and the point I made was that in reality we need to understand as as believers and as Christians our hope is not the balloon that we sometimes have this this sense of or this feeling of hopefulness but even when we don't feel maybe hopeful we still have hope and that balloon was being anchored to the word of God and it was the word of God, it, it, was, it was the Bible, it, it's the promises of God that was holding that hope down. And the reality is, even when we think we've lost our hope, even when our hope has been, been popped, if we are in Christ, if we know Christ as our Savior, we have hope because the other side of hope, it's not our feelings. As one person said, it's not our psychology. The other side of our hope is our theology. It's what we believe. It's what we know to be true. It's the promises contained in God's word. Hope you have a great week. Hope you find that helpful and encouraging walk this week in the promises of God and experience the hope of Christ. Have a great week. I'm Pastor Bill. Thanks for joining us.